A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on the scandal of closed bomb shelters in Ukraine, hear about the lives of the Ukrainians killed in Thursday's missile attack on Kyiv, and we discuss the war for resources, specifically the struggle for water in Russian-occupied Crimea. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 2nd of June. One year and 98 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest, who we're delighted to welcome back to the podcast, is spectator journalist Svetlana Moronets. I started by going to Joe Barnes in Kiev. Yesterday, Joe managed to speak to the relatives of the Ukrainians killed in Thursday morning's bombardment. Yeah, hi folks. So we attended the area, the neighbourhood where three people were killed trying to get into a bomb shelter as Russia launched a long-range missile barrage on the capital here. You would have all seen the photos by now because they've been quite famous. There was a, an older guy, he was sitting on a wooden chair overlooking a body wrapped in tin foil, some sort of metallic covering. What we know about this guy now, his name is Petro, and he was the grandfather of a nine-year-old girl who was killed, and then the father-in-law of a 33-year-old woman who was killed, who happens to be that young girl's mother. So Vika, the young daughter, and Ola, the mother, were killed when a missile air defence intercept hit the rocket that was fired by Russia, and then this landed in between a children's hospital in the northeastern corner of Kiev and a, an apartment block in in this neighbourhood. It's an old Soviet-style kind of neighbourhood filled with kind of nine-storey apartment blocks, not with their own bomb shelter. So this bomb shelter under the children's clinic was one that the residents would rush to when the air alarm sirens were sounded. So what we know, the air alarm went off and the strike hit the area about four or six minutes after the air sirens. They really had no time at all to come down from their apartments and flock to this bomb shelter but we don't we can't confirm for sure but the 
Ukrainian authorities have launched criminal investigations into into this, and the suggestion is the the bomb shelter had been locked, or they there were people in it, and they weren't letting this group of people outside. And there was in total three people were killed. There was a thirty, I think, four year old woman, uh, Natalia, who um, was also trying to get into the shelter with her family, but was unable to do so. But so we um, visited this area where the, there was a big kind of cleanup on like people going about their day trying to basically repair their apartments we visited numerous apartments but we eventually found where petro his grandfather this father-in-law was pictured earlier in the morning over overseeing his like the body of his dead relative we found we found him in his home and we we asked can we come in can we can we can, can we speak can you please tell us the story of ola and vicar and he he said yes, but one thing, and please, uh, I apologise my choice of language. He basically he basically says I want you to show the world what these bastards are doing to us. Um, talking about the Russians and Vladimir Putin's armed forces, and what we did is we kind of we built up a picture. He was he was he was he was still obviously in sort of massive shock, and he couldn't comprehend the situation. He had he had run out in the in the middle of the night. It was about it was about half three in the morning uh, after there was this massive explosion had rocked this estate, and he knew that his his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter would be heading towards towards that bomb shelter and he he says at first him him and his wife natalia another natalia um who you would have seen probably pictured crying over another body bag at the scene of this incident the traffic incident and he said look they didn't spot their family and kind of had that glimmer of hope they wouldn't have been injured or or killed but then sort of the worst happened and they they saw the two bodies sort of meters apart near this children's hospital in the area Obviously, he told us the story about how it had emerged. But then we, what we really wanted to know is we wanted to build up a picture of who these people were, who young Vicar, nine, nine years old, and who her mum, 33-year-old Ola, were. And Petro described Ola as a real golden lady. She was a, an accountant at a local sort of a big florist in, in Kiev, and she would work there. She was a, a really clever person, really friendly. She, she, she loved spending time with her daughter, and they, they were really family-orientated. But obviously, she worked a lot, which left Petro and Natalia to to sort of look after young Ola when she wasn't at school and throughout the day. And he told us stories about how he would watch her paint and play the piano. And um, he showed us a recent drawing that she had done of Elsa, the Disney princess from Frozen, which was beautifully done. It was, and it was presented to Pride of Place on their on their mantelpiece, almost um, on like a kind of chest of drawers in their apartment. She showed us pictures of Ola had recently, as little as two weeks ago, won a sort of a judo competition in the in the city of Kiev, and she was holding these two golden trophies aloft while wearing her sort of judo outfit. Um, and then another photo which was kind of really striking because it was it was the last photo he took of Vicar before she was kind of sadly taken from from him, and and it was a, a picture of Vicar trying on his old Soviet Air Force uniform. Uh, where he had been sort of a, a flight technician, an engineer type, and um, often the, uni- the, the uniform, the jacket, drowned young Vicar. Um, but she had tried to assemble all the all the badges on the jacket, but couldn't couldn't get the right orders. They were dotted around. But he had a smile on his face while telling these stories. And he was like, he was like, look, I really want you to kind of show what what Russia is doing to the people of Kiev. And that was it was the 18th long range attack on the city since the beginning of may and while people rarely die in them now thanks to ukraine's kind of bolstered air defenses there are still sort of these tragic stories around and i'll I'll tell you a little bit about natalia the third person to die 
in it. We uh, spoke to her, her husband, Yaroslav, who um, said that him and his young daughter, Polina, uh, as, long as, as well as his wife, had gone down to the shelter to find it locked. And then he and his daughter rushed off to kind of find the security guard and get him to open this shelter. And then when they returned, obviously the worst had happened. They found found Natalia uh, in kind of lifeless in a in a in the rubble. I, I guess the story is that like we of, we often speak about the the military on the front line, but the, the, this this war, this kind of war of Russian aggression, does have human consequences, and it's it's happening to people that go about their everyday lives in in Kiev and other cities across across the country, and sometimes they do get caught up in it. And it's a, it's an incredible level of resilience that. Petro like wanted to speak to us. He wanted to tell the story, and he but and he, he said this is he wants people in the West to know, and he wants them to con- continue supporting Ukraine because without sort of Ukraine's resistance against Russia, Russia could go on further. And he's saying that without sort of your support, we and knowing that Ukraine is standing up for for you as well, that this won't end. So was, that was that was really the message he was trying to get across. And I'll stop there for now. Well, thank you very much, Joe Barnes, for that. Svetlana Moronets, can I bring you in here? You've been looking at this issue of shelters and locked shelters in Kyiv. What have you found out? Hi. Yesterday's case has turned into the scandal, as this is a common problem in Ukraine with bomb shelters. For example, the capital, officially, there are over 4,000 shelters in Kyiv, and they're supposedly to be inspected all the time. But in the reality, a large chunk of them are simply underground parking lots, basement floors of apartment blocks and underground passages. And about 500 bomb shelters are marked on the map. People are advised to use by the local authorities, but some of them don't exist at all. The information is just wrong. So some shelters look as they will fall apart even with no bomb. Some are locked up at night or never open to avoid the homeless turning shelter into homes. This week, the authorities from City State Administration of Kiev, they said that the question is not so much the availability of shelters, but the desire to go down there. And many Ukrainians are indeed upset about running outside at 3 a.m. every night. But they all want to leave. And if there were more shelters and all of them were in proper condition, more people would be keen to to seek protection there. So when they decide to take that sprint with kids and pets on their backs, they expect the shelter to be open. And Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, yesterday blamed everyone in the accident but himself. Uh, like the shelter security guard, the head of the shelter, in this case, a medical institu- institution, and the head of the district. Four people were arrested, but this is not an in- isolated incident. Ukrainians complained about the shelters for months, and it is still unknown how many lives were lost because of such negligence. And uh, this year, over seven million pounds have been allocated in Kiev's budget to carry out repair works and bring shelter in order. And since 2014 invasion, even more millions were spent and we already over a year having a full-scale war in Russia and we still have problems with shelters even in the capital. And only after yesterday's scandal, the authorities started to be moving and they promised that 
the rescuers and the police would regularly check bomb shelters throughout the country. And even Zelensky today assured a firm response to the people responsible, and he ordered to carry out inspections of all the shelters in Kiev and around Ukraine and to report him in 10 days. But how effective these measures will be is another question. Thank you, Svetlana. Just one question from me. You mentioned there the response of the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. I mean, I guess our question in a political sense of this feels like a huge scandal that nothing's been done over the past years or very little has been done over the past year of, of the full-scale invasion. Do you think this has, I mean, what, what kind of political impact do you think the scandal could have in Ukraine? Yesterday, Zelensky said that uh, he like hinted that Klitschko may lose his his position, but he just like hinted. But I don't think that that will happen. And Klitschko has a very big influence in Kyiv. And also, I think he is one of the main candidates for the next president of Ukraine if he decides to run for that. So he is like very involved in the investigation right now. He's like, we will do everything. We will check all the shelters. Don't worry. Because because all the hate from people went directly to him because he is like the governor of Kyiv and this problem with the bomb shelter still exists. So he's trying to calm down all this hate that right now goes towards him. Thank you very much, Svetlana, and earlier Joe for his report. Uh, Francis Sternley, can I come to you? What are the other updates from the front lines across Ukraine and Russia? Thank you, David. Well, there have been further attacks on Kyiv this morning. An 11-year-old child was wounded and a 68-year-old man was hospitalised in the aftermath of the attack, according to Ukraine's Prosecutor General's office. As a result of the shelling, civilian objects, private houses, farm buildings and cars of civilians were damaged, it said. Ukrainian forces in the capital say they've shot down now more than 30 Russian missiles and drones overnight and this morning. And two more people were injured by falling debris. The authorities writing on Telegram have also said that Russia has launched drones and cruise missiles at the same time, which is something a little bit more unusual compared to what we've seen prior to now. According to preliminary information, more than 30 air targets of various types were detected and destroyed in the airspace over and around Kyiv by air defence forces, they have said in a statement. As Joe was saying a moment ago, that's now 20 separate missile and drone strikes against Ukrainian cities since the beginning of May. And of course, we've been reporting these strikes ever since the war began. And it's very easy to adjust to their frequency. But as Joe and Svetlana detailed there, these things are absolutely horrific and everyone can be devastating on an individual level. Lives snuffed out a whole family's story changed forever and i think it's just very important that we we don't forget that now speaking of airstrikes there have been unsubstantiated reports of ukrainian drone strikes overnight around the western city of kursk that's according to its governor there's been footage shared on social media showing russian air defenses firing missiles into the night sky with other videos showing loud explosions in the city which is about 50 miles from the ukrainian border 
The governor has said we ask the residents, of course, to remain calm. The city is under reliable protection of our army. Now, Russia is also claiming two civilians were killed after shelling in the Russian border region of Belgorod, somewhere, of course, we've been speaking about at length in the last fortnight or so. Conflicting claims have emerged as to who is perpetrating these killings. The governor of the region has claimed that Ukrainian forces shelled the road in a town near the border. They said that fragments of the shells hit passing cars and two women were travelling in one of them and died from their injuries on the spot. But members of the Freedom of Russia Legion, one of those legions we've been talking about recently, said that the two civilians were mistaken for Legion members and were killed by Russian fire. Now, regardless of who is responsible, as we've speculated in recent days, the strategic significance of the attacks on Belgorod is that they are forcing Russian commanders to reconsider where they station forces. And interestingly, British intelligence are saying today that they face, in their view, they being the Russian commanders, an acute dilemma of whether to strengthen and where to strengthen defences in Russian border regions or reinforcing their lines in occupied Ukraine. This is, of course, very significant in the context of the expected Ukrainian offensive. So something very much to monitor there closely, as we have been. Moving to the diplomatic sphere, though, we finally heard a statement from China's special envoy sent to talk to several European capitals ostensibly to find a path to negotiated peace. He's appealed to governments today to stop sending weapons to the battlefield and hold peace talks, but has given no indication that his trip to the region has made any progress towards a settlement. That comes as no surprise for the reasons we've talked about in the past. Now, of course, China's government wants to supposedly stay neutral and serve as a mediator, but that's all the while while supporting Moscow politically. And the quote is quite revealing, I think. So this is from the envoy. China believes that if we really want to put an end to war to save lives and realise peace, it is important for us to stop sending weapons to the battlefield or else the tensions will only spiral up. Now, that's all well and good, of course. But if the West were to suddenly stop sending Ukraine weapons, which is the implication, the suggestion here, then there is only one party that favours. And that is, of course, China's ally, Russia. So I think, as I say, quite a revealing statement that as to who they really think is responsible for this war being prolonged, because they probably believe that Ukraine would have collapsed by now were it not for the nature of Western support. And that is something that, given Russia is their ally, they may well welcome. Now, interestingly, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has said that the US is working with Ukraine and other allies to build consensus around the core elements of a just and lasting peace, his phrase, to end the war. Russia is said to be encouraging initiatives by other countries to bring about an end to the conflict as long as they upheld the UN Charter and Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity and independence. But what Mr Blinken has said in a speech is we will support efforts, whether by Brazil, China or any other nation, if they help us find a way to a just and lasting peace. And what I think is going on here is I sense Washington is aware that leaving China to be the only ones talking about peace is they perceive dangerous. And so are working to counter the perception that they are stepping back diplomatically because their definition of what Ukrainian victory looks like leads to no room for 
discussion. And that, as I say, is a dangerous perception when you have countries that are perhaps more hostile to the idea of this being a war that impacts the global economy and that continues indefinitely. That's something that I'm sure Washington believes can be exploited by more hostile powers who can claim that the US is stoking this conflict by continuing to provide Kyiv with such substantial support. But that said, there is no wavering from the West's allies in the Pacific. Japan's foreign minister, Yoshimasa Hayashi, has said that Japan and the like-minded countries must be united and maintain sanctions on Russia until it ends its aggression in Ukraine. So he said, judging from the situation and especially what Russia is saying and doing, I think it's important that the G7 and like-minded countries still remain united and continue severe sanctions against Russia. He said he hoped sanctions would encourage Russia to put an end to its aggression as soon as possible so that we can reach that phase where dialogue and peace talks become possible. And as I've discussed before, Japan's stance on Ukraine is unwavering in no small part due to it knowing the dangers of a Russian success there, potentially encouraging nations with their own territorial ambitions, such as China, to see war as a viable and legitimate means of achieving their aims. And for that reason, I hope to do a deep dive on Japan in a future episode because their position in this war has been fascinating and invaluable and marks, again, a transformative moment in what this war has done to wider geopolitics. Britain, America, forging much closer ties with Japan militarily, diplomatically, economically as a consequence of the war in Ukraine and Japan declaring its position on that. So it's a very interesting subject matter. But I'll stop there, David. I've been talking long enough. Thank you, Francis. And just a note, I'm pretty sure we do have listeners from the Japanese diplomatic delegation to Ukraine who do listen fairly regularly. So if you do want to get in touch and talk about that, do just get in touch with us or email the podcast. That's ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. It'd be very interesting to, to hear your thoughts and opinions on, on, on Japan and its relation with the West and Ukraine. Svetlana Moronets, can I come to you? You've written a really fascinating article for The Spectator looking at the issue of resources. Specifically, in this case, you look at water. The title of your article is Russian Occupied Ukraine is Running Out of Water. Could you tell us a little bit about um, what you found when you looked at this fight for resources? Uh, yes, sure. And to understand this fight for water, we should go back uh, into history a little bit. For half a century, most of the water in Crimea has been piped in from Ukraine through the North Crimean Canal. And the Second World War and the deportation of Crimean Tatars ended in disaster for Crimea and the newcomers, Russians who moved into the peninsula, struggled to adapt and couldn't sow the fields and harvest crops. So with Crimea was handed over to Ukraine because there was no water and Ukraine had to build the North Crimean Canal and to provide over, over 85% of Crimeans with fresh water from the Dnipro River. And Kyiv stopped the supply only when Moscow annexed Crimea in 2014 and Moscow officials tried to reassure the population that they could solve the problem, but they couldn't. They wanted to build a water pip- pipeline from Russia, but they went for a bridge instead. So by 2017, Russian officials admitted that Crimea had really big problems because the area of irrig- irrigated land 
had shrunk by 92%, halted rice production and other crops production. When I was in Crimea reporting on occupation in 2018, I was speaking to the farmers there and they were saying that they they were forced to sell their lands and to move away because they didn't have enough water for their crops. So the water issue was discussed in the highest levels in Kremlin and in Ukraine. Our war analysts and experts were warning that this could be the reason why Putin will decide to invade, one of the reasons. And they were right, because Putin decided to turn up the tap by force, invading the Kharkov Kachovsky Reservoir in the Kherson region last year. So now Crimea has its water back. But the same dynamic is going on right now in Donbass, and the British Ministry of Defense has been reporting that Russia is probably building a pipeline to mitigate the water shortage in, in on the east of Ukraine, especially in Donetsk. Because the canal that that had been supplying the region with the water before the full-scale invasion uh, remains largely under Ukrainian control. And it is less than four miles of the west of Bakhmut. And during the battle for the city, the canal was damaged or part of it was damaged. And now it is contested. And it is one of the reasons why Bakhmut was so important for Russia and why they spent so many troops there. Because if they control that part of the canal, they can repair it and to keep supplying water to Donetsk and other regions of eastern occupying Ukraine. Thank you very much, Svetlana. The issue of resource control is something that I think has been playing around the edge of things we've reported on in the past. But thank you so much for coming to do a, a little bit of a deep dive into one of the major ones. Francis Sternley, you also had some thoughts on the issue of minerals. Thanks, David. I'm really glad we're able to return to the idea of this partially being a war for resources. Ukraine's large reserves of critical metals and food, of course, and their increasing global strategic importance in the decades to come was likely a consideration in the Kremlin's calculations. I remember reading an article by, I think it was the Middle East Institute, sent to me by a listener. So thank you very much for that, whoever you are, which considered this very question. It argued that Europe's shift away from fossil fuels threatens Russia's main source of revenue, prompting the Kremlin to seek new high value exports like critical metals. Russia has abundant rare earth metal reserves, but struggles to increase production. And yet it aims to become the second largest producer after China by 2030 with a $1.5 billion investment. But progress has been very limited. Ukraine also possesses significant rare earth metal and lithium reserves valued at trillions of dollars. Russia's aggression towards Ukraine could be driven by a desire to control those resources, as we've seen in the annexation of Crimea, which Svetlana was just talking about. So the outcome of the war between Ukraine and Russia could determine the economic future of both countries for the next century. And that's, of course, why when we're talking about Crimea specifically, the economic role of Crimea is also vital for Ukraine. They see it as part of their the future they want to build, given its reserves, its resources, but also this idea that if Crimea remains under Russian control, that 
the economic renaissance that Ukraine hopes for after the war will not be entirely possible because there'll still be this fear of destabilization in the region. Now, there are just a couple of updates I want to cover. The first is a story leading to some discussion here in Britain this morning, namely that the father of a Russian-born peer who was ennobled by Boris Johnson has been sanctioned by Ukraine. So to those listeners who aren't familiar with the intricacies of the British political system, and trust me, it's confusing enough for those of us who worked in it, a peer is a member of the House of Lords. That's the unelected chamber of our parliament, and it's often prime ministers and the government who select those individuals who will sit in that chamber. Now, as I say, Zelensky has signed a decree which authorised an asset freeze on Alexander Lebedev, a former KGB intelligence officer. And this will prove pretty embarrassing for Downing Street, given that his son's much publicised links to the Conservative Party have been in the headlines in recent years. And that's, of course, the party currently in power. Britain has sanctioned about 1,600 individuals over Russia's invasion, but has steered clear of hitting this family. And the revelation that Alexander has been singled out by Kiev for undermining its sovereignty will heap pressure, I think it's fair to say, on ministers to change course. Evgeny, who was made a life peer in 2020 and sits as a crossbencher, owns the Evening Standard newspaper and the independent website. So he's very much ingratiated with the cultural establishment, particularly in London. He's held British citizenship since 2010 and has condemned, it has to be said, Putin's war in the strong, strong terms. He insisted he has no links to the Kremlin. The Evening Standard has had campaigns, I believe, on raising money for Ukraine. So this is, as I say, a story that's been rumbling on, but this is obviously leading to some awkward questions for Boris Johnson, but also for the Conservative Party and the government. The Cabinet Office had previously told Parliament that he's a man of good standing, but we'll be monitoring that one. The other story I wanted to touch on is, well, truly bizarre. Step aside, Beatrix Potter, the head of the Wagner Group, is a children's author. So the Moscow Times has revealed that Prigozhin wrote an illustrated book more than 20 years ago, and it's the subject that's really set tongues wagging because it features a king who grows too big for the land that he rules. So the the stars of this 90-page book are a brother and sister who live in a theatre's chandelier and travel down into the world of ordinary-sized people. I suppose that's you and me. And at one point, the children discover that the chandelier they live in is actually magic and can make people grow in size. And the boy offers to help the king of their native land by putting him in the chandelier. But they accidentally make him too big, and he turns into a giant who's unable to rule effectively. I hope you're all following this. So how can I rule my people if they're so small, the king says? I could destroy them by mistake. Please make me the same king I was. That's a quote from the book, according to the Moscow Times. And uh, it also includes uh, another interesting array of characters as well. So there's an older man who keeps a bird. There's one who wears a trench coat made from rough cloth and cooks soup, perhaps a nod to Prigozhin's earlier career. So yeah, a bit of a bizarre one, this. We always knew, let's face it, Prigozhin was a fan of telling fairy tales, although I don't think any of us actually thought it would be literal. If this is an insight into his subconscious, I don't think that's somewhere we'd want to spend very long. But anyway, perhaps it reveals that his anger at the Russian hierarchy has been brewing for much longer than many believe. But frankly, David, I wouldn't recommend listeners add this one to their children's bookshelf. 
Thanks, Francis. Can I just ask you, and this story came in about three minutes before we, we started this recording, so I know we haven't really we haven't been able to do too much on it, but a what potentially could be a very interesting story has come in from Germany. German police have searched a house in a town near Berlin in connection with the sabotage on the Nord Stream pipeline last September. Francis, could you just give us a little bit more information about this before we go to our final thoughts? Yes, well, as you allude to, David, German police have searched a house in a town near Berlin in connection with the sabotage on the Nord Stream pipeline last September. So apparently, and this is very much breaking news, so we haven't had a chance to really process this yet. As you say, detectives from Germany's Federal Criminal Agency have searched an apartment in the town of Frankfurt, Der Order, on May 25th, the apartment belongs to a young woman who was once romantically involved with a chief suspect with whom she has a child. That's according to a newspaper there. Detectives took a DNA swab from the child, which they are now going to compare with DNA found on a yacht that the saboteurs are thought to have used during the operation. So German media claim to know the identity of the woman's former partner, who is a serving soldier in the Ukrainian army. So if this is true, then it would counter the narrative that it was Russia who were responsible for the destruction of Nord Stream. That is commonly believed by many officials in governments. And of course, that is the view I think put forward by most diplomats really is that they they believe it was Russia responsible for doing that as an attempt to threaten Europe more directly in the energy crisis, although one could argue that that's not especially logical, given that by destroying Nord Stream, it wasn't then able for Russia to sort of dangle the energy uh, carrot, as it were, for Europe, if the war were to end shortly afterwards. So it's I've reported on the podcast previously that certain other journalists in the United States have said that it wasn't Russia, that it may have been the, the America, that it may have been the West or it may have been Ukraine. And this clearly would add to that if it's true. But I think at this stage, we'll need to sort of process it a little bit further because that's all we've got on it at the moment. So leave it with us and I'm sure we'll come back to it. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. And just so listeners understand, this does occasionally happen. A very big story will drop about three minutes before we have to start. And we, you know, today, Francis and I looked at each other and thought, oh, gosh, right, OK. Um, well, we'll come back to this on Monday once we see more details emerge. So thank you very much, Francis, for just summarising it there. Francis, can I stay with you for the final thoughts? Because we'd quite like to give the very final words to Svetlana today. So Francis, certainly. Thanks, David. I just want to read a short Twitter thread from Mark Wallace, who is the chief executive of Total Politics and a columnist for the I newspaper here in the UK. He's also written for The Telegraph in the past and is overall a thoroughly nice chap, I have to say. But I think he sums up very neatly certain problems with the so-called realist position, that being that there should be negotiations now to end the war and if necessarily grant Russia some territory in exchange for peace. He strongly criticises this argument and he says, so I'll read it in full. One of the many ridiculous things about the argument that it's a realist position to suggest we get peace by allowing Russia to gain and keep Ukrainian territory is that this is literally what happened in 2014 and it led directly to this current war. This isn't hypothetical. It also isn't a one-off freak incident. It's also literally what happened in Georgia in 2008, which led directly to the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, which led directly to the invasion of Ukraine today. It isn't realist if you've tried it twice and it doesn't work. 
This approach had plenty of other spillover effects too, of course. A civilian airliner blown out of the sky. Chemical weapons deployed to murder British civilians on the streets of Salisbury. Russian dominance in Syria. Refugees driven into Turkey, through Europe and to Britain. Not much of this sounds like peace to me, nor does repeating it on a larger scale in expectation of an opposite outcome sound like realism. And I think his point is very well articulated for one, but also his point about spillovers is largely forgotten but vital. The shooting down of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17, which killed all 298 people on board, apart from being an egregious act, was exceedingly dangerous. If that had been a Western military aircraft, for instance, who knows what kind of consequences there might have been. And perhaps that was another of those missed moments, missed warnings, when the West should have woken up to the danger of what Russia had done in Crimea. Instead, it equivocated. And this terrible war is a consequence of that failure. Many believe, as I've talked about today, that if Russia comes out of this with some semblance of victory, all evidence points to the fact that we should expect more of such incidents and an emboldened Russia. And the question I think on many people's lips now is, can we risk that? Can we reward aggression? And can we enable a country that has been conducting these kind of operations for so long and yet without the West really responding in the way that clearly was required. It's a big question, but I think it's one on many people's minds. Thank you very much, Francis. Svetlana Moronets, any comments or thoughts about some of the updates we've heard, or would you like to talk a little bit about your article in The Telegraph uh, that's come out in the last few days, I'm just trying to find it actually, where you talk about some of the internal issues in Russia itself? Uh, yes, first I would like to say a few words about Ukrainian counteroffensive because I guess you notice that uh, the last one or two weeks the hype around it finally calmed down. And I'm so glad because of that. And actually, the overhype around Ukrainian counteroffensive was the fault of our government because they were trying to push the West to send us more weapons and fighter jets, the tanks, everything what we need. And the counteroffensive will happen. But the problem was that right now everybody has such a high expectation that Ukraine will march, all, Ukrainian army will march all the way to Crimea or, I don't know, will rebe- liberate a lot of lands. And that is the problem because if our ma- army won't fulfill those expectations, that would mean that maybe K will be pushed to start negotiations with Moscow, and that's not what we want. So I'm very glad that finally people like stopped talking so much about counteroffensive and they just wait for when it happened, and then all these analyses will start again and how the things will move forward. Because for the soldiers, it is they feel offended that everybody talks about it like a show, but they will be the ones who will be fighting and who will be sacrificing their health and their lives. So, yes. And about my article for The Telegraph, I wrote there about that Russian neighbors are interested in some of the Russian lands, for example, as Japan in the Kuril Islands, when they announced after Russia invaded Ukraine 2022, they said, okay, now we, it, we say it is officially 
temporary occupied territory by Russia. And the China that is interested in the part of Siberia and far east of Russia where they have been buying lands and a lot of Chinese people move there. I'm not saying that like they will start the invasion of Russia just seeing how weak this its army is. I'm just saying that Moscow should be watching its back. And the same if we talk about Belgorod region, about these fighters, Russian Russian fighters that went there under Ukrainian flag. It was... Of course, Kiev didn't confirm that they, like, helped it, but they went inside from Ukrainian territory and for sure they had permission to do that. So I would say it served like a reminder to Putin that others could also reclaim their territories that they owned a lot of years or centuries ago. And the prospect of exiled Russian on tanks turning Russian border regions into national republics is like a, is seen as a welcomed playback for Moscow's deeds in the Donbass. And today and yesterday and day before yesterday, I constantly see reports on Telegram channels, especially Russian Telegram channels of their military bloggers that more Russian fight, exiled Russian fighters are like crossing the border and they just walk there in the Belgorod region or they, they have small fights with the Russian regular army. And also Ukrainian army uses drones to shell Belgorod region. So it is like, it is to turn the attention from the other parts of the front line. So Moscow doesn't know where to hold their troops and where to pay attention. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.